Um, I'm married to the most wonderful woman in the world. We have five children, and uh, we're about to leave for six months to go work among Haitians living in Dominican Republic. Please, please pray for us that the work that we do, God would use to revitalize Haitian churches. Um, many of them, um, the gospel is dim in their churches, and so we do pray that uh, the, the work that we do among them would, would lift them up and encourage them and, and challenge them to, to preach and teach God's word in the way that he would have them do. So pray that for us. When I was a kid, every year or so, the Wizard of Oz would come on television. Yes, television, that thing that you had to wait for something to actually come on. You couldn't just press a button and there it was. So you had to wait, and every year or so, the Wizard of Oz would come on television. I don't remember the first time I saw the Wizard of Oz. I don't remember where I was. I don't remember how old I was, but I I remember how it made me feel. It was scary, like really scary. And I just remember being really intimidated by it. It was kind of epic for that time. But over the years, I watched it more and more, and I became more familiar with it. And, and you know, the, the scariness of it really, really wore off. And then I saw a documentary about the movie, and it explained how the tornado scene was really made with a pair of, a pair of pantyhose. And so really the, the, the magic of it really just went away. <laughs> and I've never really watched it the same since. And as we all know, familiarity breeds contempt. I remember one of the first times I read the passage that we're going to be in today in chapter 27 of the book of Matthew. And and I was really reading it, I think, for the first time, really just getting into it. I was about 20-some years old. I was a new Christian. Uh, I was sitting in a quiet patch of woods in the Pisgah National Forest, and the, the light was beaming in through the trees. And as I read of my Savior being beaten by pilot soldiers, I was broken, and I wept. Over the years, I've become more and more familiar with the suffering of Christ and the crucifixion. I've read books and heard sermons about the brutal nature of the crucifixion and scourging. And I've, I've tried my best to become a cross-centered person living a cross-centered life. And along the way, my familiarity with the cross has made it common to me. I'd grown too familiar with it. And I didn't fully realize this until I was speaking to my dad this week. And he was telling me how he had listened to a sermon on the radio about the crucifixion of Christ. And he began to weep. And I was was broken by that. Because I want that. I don't want the cross to be familiar to me in such a way that I have contempt for it. Or that I don't have passion for it. Or that it doesn't move me. I feared that when we read about Jesus' death, a few things can happen to us. One, we read with a familiarity that keeps us from being moved in the way that Matthew and the New Testament writers intended for us. Secondly, we emphasize the physical suffering in a way that misses the emphasis on emotional, relational, and spiritual suffering of Christ. And then thirdly, we read without a sense of what God is accomplishing in the suffering of Christ. And so that's what I've been reflecting on this week. And, and, and to come in here this morning and to sing these songs, I just want to keep singing. Because I've been reflecting on my Savior all week long. And I wish that we could do it all over. I wish we could put all the songs at the end. So that, so that what we're about to discuss will be fresh in your mind and heart. And you would have the experience that I've been able to have the last 20 minutes or so singing about the greatness of my God because of what he's done in the cross. We will be able to celebrate and worship and taking of the Lord's Supper. And so I do pray that, that as we spend time in the word this morning that God will prepare you for that, that worship. This morning I want to pull back the curtain on the cross of Christ if you will allow me to do that with you. The Wizard of Oz has this really interesting scene towards the end where Dorothy, Toto, and the gang, they go into the Emerald City and they go to, into the presence of the wizard. And when, when they get there, it's smoke and fire and this photo of the wizard on the wall and he looks kind of scary and they're all intimidated and, and they, they come to him and trying to, to have a hearing with him. Toto, or Dorothy wants to go home and he says, go back, come back tomorrow. Go away, come back tomorrow. And as all this is happening, Toto goes over to the curtain and grabs the curtain with its teeth and pulls it open. 
what's behind the curtain but a, a round elderly man working a contraption, making all the noise that goes with all the commotion that's going with the photo of the wizard. And so what happens when that curtain is pulled back, you get to see that the wizard really is just a regular guy. He's just an elderly man. He's a, he's a sham. And so adoration and respect, honor, almost worship for them is just broken to the ground because they see that the wizard really isn't all that wonderful at all. The wizard is less than wonderful once the veil is removed. But this morning, the king of the universe beckons us, look behind the curtain. Step in and see what I'm up to in the death of Christ. He wants us to draw near and look into the cross and behold its glories, to descend its depth that we might comprehend its height of love and grace. The king that we find behind the veil is a good and mighty king worthy of worship. The depths of the crucifixion is intended to prepare the reader for the heights of the resurrection. And my prayer this morning is that we would move past familiarity with the cross and grow in intimacy with God who orchestrates the cross. So let us pray that God would have his way with us this morning and do just that. Father, we do ask that the familiarity that we have with the cross and all that surrounds Easter, the hearing of it, the reading the busyness, the social expectations, all of those things that, that creep in and cloud and cover what's really happening at the cross and in the resurrection, I pray that it would be torn away. God, I ask that you would do that through your word. I pray that you would move me out of the way and that, Holy Spirit, you would speak through your word that we might hear from you and grow in intimacy with you that we might have joy and satisfaction. Jesus, as we reflect on what you have done for us, we are humiliated by it because it implicates us. But praise you that you did all of it to bring us in nearness to your Father. So as we approach your word, we ask that you would humble us with it and raise us up with you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In verse 27, in Matthew 27, we see this. Then the soldiers, of the, uh, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail! king of the Jews, and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Verse 27 continues the grim scene from last week. Jesus' betrayal and arrest lead to his fake trial and unjust condemnation. Pilate has turned him over to be crucified rather than Barabbas. Jesus is then taken back inside the governor's headquarters where some 600 soldiers gather over him. They strip him of his last possessions and replace them with someone else's robe. Weary from the scourging he just received, he can barely stand. A crown of thorns is shoved onto his head and he is hit again and again and again and again with a stick. This may be one of the most ironic scenes in all of Scripture. And surely for Matthew's gospel, it is the most ironic. You see, he's seeking to establish the majesty of Jesus among his Jewish readers. And so this serves as a, a fake coronation in the mind of Matthew. And it is nothing less than heartbreaking. Consider the irony that, that Matthew is presenting. The one who is worshipped by legions of angels is assaulted by 600 soldiers. The one who is clothed in majesty from time past is stripped naked only to be wrapped in leftover clothing. The king, creator of the universe, is crowned with thorns, the very symbol of corruption and fallenness that God gave to Adam in the garden. The one who sovereignly controls history and raises up kings and puts them down is given a mock scepter, a fake symbol of control, 
The one who spoke all things into existence, who breathed his spirit into man, is spit upon. The one worthy of all worship, obedience, service, and adoration is tortured. The head of all things is struck about the head. Thus far, Matthew has presented to his readers a Jesus who raises the dead, controls weather, escapes capture, talks his way out of every trap. So how has Jesus gotten here? Why doesn't he call on his father to destroy his enemies? Why not call the host of angels at his disposal? This scene is much like the country of Haiti invading America, breaking into the White House, capturing President Obama, and then trying to defend their capture against the United States military. The United States military spent $683 billion with a B in 2010. The GDP of Haiti is $13 billion. So our military budget is 60 times that of all everything that Haiti produced in one year. Haiti would have their hands full in that situation. And that's exactly what's happening here. If Jesus wanted to display his military prowess, his ability uh, to succeed in battle, these men would have their hands full. But Jesus, he's up to something else. As he says in John 10, no one takes my life from it, from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I give it up. And so he is actively restraining himself in this situation because of the work that his father has given him to do. So the question remains, why does God let this happen? Surely the death of Christ can transpire without this type of shame and humiliation. But if we look in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, we see this. It says, since then we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace, and find grace to help us in our time of need. While Jesus is in Pilate's headquarters, as the cursing rained down on him, as the spit lands on his face, as his head is split from the blows, as the accusations that he is a liar, a fake, crazy, a fool, delusional, racially insuperior, worthless, as all this is happening, he is plunging into the depths of human experience. And because of it, he has faced every temptation you have faced or could face. Yet he did not sin. He didn't curse back. He didn't hate. He didn't yell in anger. He didn't have to be right. He didn't make his case. He has felt every loss and pain and betrayal and disappointment and respect. He can sympathize with you. In your weakest moment, he is saying, Come to me. I understand. He's saying, draw near to God, come into the curtain, come to my throne, and ask for help in your weakness, and I will give you so much grace. I will give you mercy. It seems here that Jesus is completely out of control, and that his God is nowhere to be found. It seems that the battalion is imposing their will completely on Jesus, but in reality, this scene depicts a humanity out of control. Humanity in need of a rescuer and a rescuer on a mission. Once the soldiers satisfy their brutality, they once again strip Jesus and reclothe him with his blood-soaked garments and they march him away to the cross. In verse 32, we see this. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled this man to carry his cross. Simon, likely from Libya, most likely in town for the Passover, he he gets caught up into this procession. Jesus, most likely 
too weak to carry his own cross from the beatings. He can't do it himself. And the Roman guards surely aren't going to do it. So what do they do? They see a man and they say, hey, you, you carry this cross. And the word compel makes us think that he's like, I'm not carrying that. It's not my cross. But they compel him. They make him. And so he shoulders the cross. And you have to remember, this is a, a tool of execution. It would have been clover, covered with old blood, hair. It's a disgusting mess. And he shoulders it and carries this for Christ. The picture here is a helpless Jesus, one who cannot carry his own cross. But the question hanging in the air is this. Where is Simon Peter? Where is the one who said he would never leave Jesus? The one who said, no, 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 I'll be with you till the end. The one who drew the sword. This would be a fantastic opportunity for, for Peter to come in and jump in there and, and, and be with his Savior. But he wasn't. Because Matthew is presenting to us a Christ that is alone, without friend in the world, without companion. Verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Most commentators think that Jesus did not drink the wine because of the bitter taste that it had, which was representative of a narcotic used to intoxicate the crucified. Jesus is assumably wanting to be present and in his right mind for the crucifixion. He wants to be there. He doesn't want it to pass him over in drunkenness. Matthew says, and they crucify him almost in passing. He doesn't explain the gruesome details of the nails piercing the hands or the physical effects of crucifixion on Jesus, what would have happened medically. He does none of that. He states it as a matter of fact. And some assume this is because Matthew's audience would have known all the gory details. But in this passage, shame, betrayal, mockery, forsakenness, disrespect, misrepresentation, and all the rest, they seem to be the most painful aspects in Christ's experience. So I believe that Matthew excludes the details of the physical sufferings of the cross, not to minimize them, but to maximize the spiritual suffering of Christ in light of the physical Consider the genuine anguish of it all. Jesus goes to take a drink to, to parch his thirst as he's been marched to the cross. And when he puts it to his lip, he, he realizes it's, it's been poisoned. He is then nailed to the cross. Then his last earthly possessions, his clothing, become the property of his executors. As not to tear the clothing in equal parts, they roll dice to see who gets them. This is the end of the line for Jesus. His clothes are of no value to him now. Imagine that. You're at the very end, so much so, as a grown man, that your clothes are of no good to you any longer. That's the end. You don't need your clothes anymore today. Surely, death is near. As he entered the world, he will go out of it, naked. With no entertainment left, the soldiers sit to keep watch over Jesus. Evidently, they were there to make sure no one took Jesus down off the cross. The idea of Jesus being kept watch over is in direct contradiction to this sign that's placed over his head. Right? This sign proclaiming that this is Jesus, King of the Jews. It contrasts the control that these Roman soldiers would have had with the control that Jesus has over the situation as the sovereign king of the universe, the king of the Jews that was promised from all time, that would be prince of peace, mighty God. In this sign, we can see that Jesus' position as king and Messiah cannot be moved. 
It cannot be upended by a Roman cross. He is still the promised rescuer. The mission has not been aborted. Jesus knew this fully, and with sealed lips, he endures the cross. Hebrews 12 yanks back the curtain for us a little bit further as we think about this. In verse 2, it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knows that there is something on the other side of the cross. The cross is something to be endured with all its shame and embarrassment and hatred and pain. And on the other side of the cross is the joy of obediently glorifying his Father and rescuing his people. Joy drives Jesus further and further into the pit that sin and corruption creates. He's neck deep in it, up to his ears. But he knows and believes that his Father will keep the promise of the resurrection. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross. Hebrews is not saying that Jesus is smiling on the inside while hanging on a shame-filled cross. No, he is filled with holy hatred, despising it to death. But joy is the fuel that drives him down. The joy of knowing that he will lead those enslaved to sin into relationship with his Father. The joy of knowing that he will return to his right place, seated beside his Father. In verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified him with him, one on the right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Matthew explains that Jesus is not completely alone in the crucifixion. Two men, likely partners of Barabbas, were crucified on his right and his left. Being flanked on each side by convicted criminals only serves to highlight the innocence of Jesus. Remember, he, he did nothing wrong. This trial was a fake. All the witnesses were brought in and compelled and made accusations that weren't true. The two men beside him are most likely insurrectionists in cahoots with Barabbas, meaning the cross in the center was meant for Barabbas. Barabbas should be hanging on that cross, and Jesus should be enjoying the, enjoying the Passover with his disciples in the holy city. At least that's what justice says. But mercy says something different. Mercy sells, says the guilty goes free because the innocent takes his place and his penalty. As 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was working through Christ as he's on the cross to bring reconciliation to himself into the world, a world suffering under the effects of sin. He did not do so by counting their sins against them, against those sinners, yet counting them against Christ. The theme of substitution that you guys talked about last week still hangs in the air as Jesus occupies a cross most likely intended for Barabbas. Those who passed by insulted him. You got to remember, this is, a, this is a, a busy weekend for Jerusalem. Everybody's coming into town. Uh, the crosses most likely were set up on the outskirts of town near a highway to discourage people from, from breaking the law. And so as people stream into town, those who pass by, they insult him and they shake their heads in disgust. They even quote Jesus back to himself saying, liar, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. You didn't keep your word. Some of these people may have even been those who followed after Jesus. People who were familiar with his teaching. And I wonder, as people turn away from him in disgust and yell at him, if he recognizes some of them. Some of the the great crowds that followed him early in his ministry, 
people that he um, spent time with in Jerusalem the week before he died. Maybe he knew who they were. Imagine the relational pain of that. To have been praised by someone, to have been appreciated by someone, to have had a friendship with someone maybe even, to know their name, to be spoken well of by someone, and then for them to yell at you, to be disgusted by you, to call you a liar, to to bring up things that you said to them and say, you aren't who you said you were. The pain, the brokenness, the, the relational betrayal that's happening to Christ during all of this can't be underscored enough. They demand, make good on your promises. And they think that means him coming down from the cross to rescue himself. But Jesus knows it means going down into the grave and coming up from the grave to rescue some. And so his silence, in a sense, yells, I am destroying the temple. I will rebuild it. I am the Son of God. Therefore, I will stay here completing the work my Father gave me to do. Verse 31, likewise, we see, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The chief priests, scribes, and elders in the book of Matthew are mentioned three times. The first, ironically, is when Jesus tells his followers that he will suffer many things at their hands and be killed by them, then raised on the third day. Second, when they gather together at his trial before the high priest. Third, here in verse 41. So Jesus said this would happen. And Matthew tips us off to that by mentioning chief priests, scribes, and elders. The reader should go back and think, oh, Jesus said this would happen. He's suffering at their hands and is about to be killed. And he will be raised again as promised. We see God working out his plan here. Jesus has been talking about this. It's going according to plan. And in Acts 2, verse 23, we see this. This Jesus, this is Peter preaching to a group of people. Um, not long after the resurrection, not long after this time. He's preaching to people. He's doing his first sermon. It's the day of Pentecost, a bunch of people. He's preaching. And, And this is how he preaches to them. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's making two really clear points here. In Christ's death on the cross, God is in control. Complete and utter control, orchestrating all the things that are happening. He's working it out. He's executing his definite plan. He also makes it clear that Peter's hearers were responsible for the death of Christ. At the end of the sermon, his hearers ask, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized as an outward sign of inward faith. Likewise, this morning, though you did not drive the nails into Jesus' hands, your sin drove him to the cross. The love of the Father for his sinful people propelled Jesus to his date with death. And a proper response to the cross is to to inquire, what must I do to be saved? When Jesus explained, or when Peter explains to these people what took place and that they were complicit, their response was, guilty. They knew they were responsible. Even though they hadn't driven the nails themselves, they were involved. We're involved. We're guilty. So the religious leaders, they join in the mockery. 
by recalling how he healed others and raised others from the dead, but now is seemingly powerless. They justify themselves and they say, if he really is the king of Israel, he will come down from the cross. They're almost saying, hey, you know, we nailed you up there, but if you really are who you say you are, then you have the power to come down and make it all cool. They even make a wager. If he does come down from the cross, even we will believe. The people that have opposed him from the beginning, they say, if he comes down the cross, I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'll follow Jesus. After rejecting all that Jesus had said and done and proved over the last three years, the chief priests and the scribes and elders are ready to believe if Jesus will just do one thing. So let me ask you, what is the one thing that you are waiting on God to do before you are willing to follow him, before you're willing to believe? After all he's done in your life, yet you put him off. You hold him to your requirements. What's that thing? What's that thing that you're saying, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll know that you're real. I'll know you are who you say you are, and then I'll follow you. Jesus is going to do the religious leaders one better. He'll finish the cross. He'll go through death. And rather than come down from the cross, he'll come up on the third day. How much more should they then believe that he is who he says he is? And you, what greater can God do than he has already done in raising Christ from the dead to exclaim to you, I am who I say that I am. Worship me. He can do nothing greater. This morning, stop making demands of Jesus and worship him. Just worship him for who he is. Worship him for what he's done. Worship him for what he's done for you. The religious leaders even go so far as to question Jesus' connection to God, the one he calls Father. Let God deliver him if he wants him. If he is truly God's son, God will come to get him. So they start to implicate, throw stones at the fact that Jesus has this intimate connection with his Father. And they start to bring that into question once again. Verse 44 really simply says this, And the robbers who were crucified with him also revile him in the same way. Even those crucified with him join in the mockery, repeating all that everyone else is saying. I mean, how painful is this, right? So Jesus is jeered by the religious elite, the social outcasts, and everybody in between. I mean, everybody's getting in on the action. Everyone. Matthew is painting a picture for us that, that Jesus is... Completely forsaken. Nobody's with him. I mean, even, even these, these murderous, robber, insurrectionist terrorists are yelling at him. You know, who do you think you are? Oh, you think you're the son of God. Imagine the pain of that. Jesus has hit rock bottom through no fault of his own. And things are about to get worse. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew explains that since noon, darkness has been covering the land. There have been many attempts to explain this, this midday darkness in natural terms, an eclipse, a sandstorm, clouds, some type of natural, natural phenomenon that's causing this darkness. 
But it doesn't seem that, that Matthew's intention is to explain this darkness in natural terms. Quite the opposite, he's, he seems to be using it as a backdrop to highlight the spiritual reality of what's taking place. His readers would be really familiar with darkness as a representative for all that is wrong with the world. And so then it would follow that when the most terrible thing that has ever transpired in the history of the world, when that happens, darkness would abound. Something is being said here. Twice in Matthew, uh, chapter 3 and then in verse uh, chapter 3 and chapter 17, God has expressed his fatherly pleasure of Jesus verbally, saying, this is my son in whom I'm well, I'm well pleased. Most notably, in the transfiguration of Jesus, God speaks through a bright cloud, a brilliant cloud. And he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But here in Matthew, there's only darkness and silence. Here, Jesus' Father has veiled the heavens and darkened the land. It's as if God is yelling his silent disapproval of the treatment of his Son. Darkness abounds. In the middle of the day, something is going on. Matthew records only one phrase from Jesus during the crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been silent up to this point, and his simple question reveals a complex reality. The son is experiencing relational separation from his father for the first time, and it is tearing him apart. He has never known anything but perfect unity of relationship, joy, and communion with his father. And now he senses a distance between them, a forsakenness, an abandonment. Though this relational rift will be temporary, it is significant. And Jesus' words carry the weight of that. This is a painful statement out of the words, out of the mouth of Jesus. The text only tells us what Jesus says, and we should take it as a true representation of how he feels. And it really matches the overall theme of Matthew the brokenness, the forsakenness, the, the pain, the anguish. And if you allow me to say, say so, it's really the cherry on top, if you will. There's some mystery here. How can two persons with the same essence experience a relational rift? In what sense did the father forsake his son? Did Jesus simply feel forsaken, or has he genuinely been separated from his father? There's mystery there. And those are complex subjects. But regardless of what is intended by the word forsaken, the spiritual reality of what is happening to Christ on the cross is this. Jesus takes the sin of his people onto himself, taking and paying the penalty for their sin. The penalty for sin is the righteous anger of God because sin is an assault on God's majesty and character. And the reality, that reality, created a relational rift between God the Father and God the Son that had never happened before. There's brokenness. Jesus really, 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 really feels alone and abandoned and forsaken. He's low as it gets. He's drowning in all that is sin and corruption and brokenness. All that's wrong with the world, he's up to here. And for a perfect moral creature, God in the flesh, the God-man who's never sinned, Never experienced anything like this. This is killing him. God the Father is exacting his righteous wrath on his beloved son because he is bearing the sins of God's people. This is a joyously heartbreaking reality. 
And can it be that my God should die for me? For me, the chief of sinners. Couldn't there be another way? There is no other way. The creator steps into the world he created to rescue his creation by paying the penalty for their sin against him. God turns both barrels of his holy wrath on himself so that his people can come back into a perfect relationship with him. This reality is the greatest expression of love that one can imagine. And this reality beckons us to God. How could we stay away when he went so far to bring us near? There is no greater love than this. There's no greater expression of love than this. God loves his people and is willing to do what needs to be done, even to this length, to bring them to himself that he might be glorified. This is a complex reality. If we look back in our text, we'll see Jesus, when he says the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the word Eli sounding like Elijah, some people think that he's calling on Elijah. And Jews at the time would have been waiting on Elijah to come as this predecessor of the Messiah. Some would have superstitiously thought that Elijah would come and help people in their time of need, kind of like a guardian angel. Thinking that Jesus is near the end, one man runs to get Jesus some wine, presumably a comfort measure. But the others interrupt his gesture, wanting to extend the agony of Jesus and his need for Elijah's help. So you see this one guy trying to do something nice for Jesus in the passage. He goes to get some some, some wine for Jesus to, to help quench his thirst. And just as he's about to help Jesus out, everybody's like, no, don't do that. We want to see if Elijah's going to come. Extend the agony that he's feeling so that he continues to call on Elijah. And, and maybe he'll come. We want to see what's going to happen. It just goes further and further and further and further down for Jesus in this passage. The brokenness, the separation the, the complete disregard for who he is. The picture of broken humanity that we see in this passage is, is really incalculable. Jesus cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. Matthew continues to highlight the control that the suffering Savior has even to the end. Jesus willingly lets go of his life with a loud cry. No one takes it from him. He lets it go. He gives it up. Verse 51 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple, when Jesus dies, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus' death sets off a string of events. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. An earthquake that splits open rocks and tombs. Bodies of saints are raised and then appear to people in Jerusalem. And then Jesus' executioners are filled with awe, and they testified that Jesus was who he said he was. It seems that this series of events happens in two stages. So the first stage is this. Right when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn, earthquake happens, and the tombs are opened. Then the centurions respond, truly this is the Son of God. Secondly, The raised bodies of the saints and their appearance in Jerusalem happen after Jesus' resurrection. Seems to be that that's uh, probably the best reading of this passage. There's some ambiguity there, but plenty of commentators think that uh, because of other passages make it clear that that, uh, Jesus was the first to be raised. Uh, It's very important to read it that way. And so we see this this two-part happening. His death does some things, and his resurrection does some things. And this is a bit of a foretaste 
for Matthew as he's writing. He's, he's even foreshadowing what's going to happen in the next, the next little part. That Jesus is going to be raised. And that supernatural things are going to happen because of that. And that Jesus is the first one to come out of the grave. The firstborn among the dead. So the centurion and his companions, really something miraculous is happening there. Think of these guys, these centurions. What do they do for a living? They just put people to death all day long. It's probably their job every day, take people up to the hill, kill them. Next day, kill them. Next day, kill them. I mean, these, these guys are hardened folks. They've killed a lot of people. They've heard people cry. They've heard people say things. They've, they've seen it all, right? But... The crucifixion of Jesus and what happens afterwards is so significant that their only response is, truly, truly this guy was the Son of God. The centurion and his companions are our best examples to follow this morning. When reflecting on all that happens at the cross, they're left with that one response. Jesus is who he said he was. And if we're honest, we are far, we're far more like the centurion than anyone else in the passage. Gentiles who are complicit in the execution of Jesus. We don't know if they ever became followers of Jesus, but we know that they said what was on everyone else's mind. So this morning, would you be willing to take the simple step of making a confession this morning whether it's for the first time or the 5,000th time, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He is who he said he is. Would you be willing to do that? Some of you here today have never really done that. You've never truly believed that, that Jesus is who he says he is. And that because of what he's done on the cross, it shows that because of what we're going to see next week when Jesus comes out of the tomb victoriously, that it proves that. Would you be willing to do that? And for those of you who know Jesus and walk with him, is that a daily confession of yours? Jesus, you're God's son. You are who you said you are. You're the promised one. You did all the things you were supposed to do and are continuing as the son of God to intercede for me. Do you have that type of relationship and nearness to him? Verse 55. <laughs> There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And then verse 57 says this. When it was evening, there came a man, a rich man, from Arimathea, Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Our passage this morning ends by explaining the details of how Jesus gets from the cross to the tomb. The picture of Jesus completely alone in verses 27 through 54 is replaced in verses 55 through 61 with a picture of friends drawing near to serve Jesus after his death, to mourn his death and prepare his body, lending a tomb and keeping watch. The theme of substitution continues as Jesus takes Joseph's place in the grave. The dark loneliness of the cross gives way to a hopeful nearness of friends. In my introduction, I reminded us that familiarity breeds contempt. And as we enter into holiday season uh, that we're all very familiar with, I want to encourage you very simply to replace familiarity with intimacy. What I mean is this. Don't let yourself be content with simply knowing about Jesus, knowing facts about him, knowing what he did or what he didn't do or how all those things worked or with knowing about details of the cross, or details of the, re the resurrection, or arguments for the resurrection, any of those things. But let me encourage you in a, in a pursuing of knowing the person of Jesus and intimacy with him, because that's exactly 
what he's procuring at the cross for us. In verse 51, we see this peculiar phrase that the curtain is torn from top to bottom, the curtain in the temple. That is symbolic of the separation between a holy God and sinful men and women. So when Jesus dies, that symbol of separation is torn from top to bottom, opening a way for sinful people to come to a holy God because their sin has been paid for. That's what's being said. God is saying, come near to me. Don't just be familiar with me. Be intimate with me. Come to me. Know me. Spend time with me. Talk with me. Be mine. Some simple ways to think about doing that this week. Knowing him. Read chapter 27 and 28 of Matthew a few times and just ask God to draw you near to him as you read. Just really simply read God's word and say, hey, draw me near to you. I want to be near to you. I want to know you. Not looking for info, but for intimacy. Ask him to do that and he will. Ask your small group to pray for you as you enter into a a season of renewed joy over a relationship with God. Ask your friends to do that for you. Confess to them if you've become familiar with with Jesus and, and have not been intimate with him. Just be honest about that. Ask people to pray for you. And then repent from sin as God makes it known to you. Free from sin to him. Don't let your sin drive you away from him, but like the Hebrews passage we looked at before, go to him in your time of weakness. Receive mercy and grace. I want to leave you with Hebrews 6, 19, 20. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paved the way. He's our hope. And he's the hope that keeps us from drifting far from God. He calls us to come in to the curtain near to his Father, to have intimacy with him, get near to him. That's what Jesus has purchased for you. In the gospel, you get God. If you're looking for something else in the gospel other than God himself, you've missed the value of that person that we call God. It's my prayer that during this season of familiarity, that intimacy would be the thing that replaces that, a nearness to God and knowing of him. So would you pray for me as we respond to our great God